This is Warning Radio with Dr. Jonathan Hansen, founder and president of World Ministries International, a non-denominational end times ministry dedicated to fulfilling a divine commission to trumpet forth warnings from God concerning the imminent second coming of Christ and the impending judgment of God upon the ungodly. God has sent Dr. Hansen to many nations of the world with a solemn warning to the political and religious leaders and citizenry to repent of their sinfulness and wickedness or face the catastrophic judgments that will soon be unleashed upon the unbelieving world. Listen now to the warnings of our compassionate and merciful Creator conveyed through His faithful prophetic spokesman, the host of Warning Radio, Dr. Jonathan Hansen. This is Dr. Jonathan Hansen, and welcome to my Warning Radio program. Today you're going to hear a message from my son-in-law, Ty Goldstrom, that was recorded in August 9, 2003, while I was in Jamaica ministering. And he's speaking on Nehemiah. The message is timeless. You're going to enjoy it. Sit back and listen now. May God richly bless you. Well, today um, we're going to speak on Nehemiah. There's two reasons I want to speak on Nehemiah. One is because I really want to somehow capture the character of Nehemiah. Certainly, we can never capture totally a character of any person biblically, but today I want to concentrate on a few areas of Nehemiah's life because I want to be able to somehow ascertain and comprehend that why he was such an effective spiritual leader. And he was one of the best spiritual leaders in all of Scripture. Amen? And if you can capture and somehow obtain and somehow study for the goal of allowing that knowledge to travel from the head down to the heart to cause change, I believe that the Lord can use you in more dynamic ways to lead others. And I also want to launch our mindset for the next class. Now, I haven't even peered into the book or the syllabus about what Dr. Cottle is going to teach, so I don't know how much of the character of Nehemiah he's going to cover. I'm imagining as he works through the book, he'll certainly at times talk about the character of Nehemiah, but I don't think he'll do it, as far as I understand, from just looking at the character period. And I want to be able to capture Nehemiah so that when we were working through this class, when you read the book by Dr. Cottle and we go through the 10 hours of lecture, that you have already kind of a mindset about who Nehemiah is and some of the attributes that he had. Because these will be critical, I believe, and to capture what the Spirit of God is saying through the book of Nehemiah. I'm going to start today. Guess what book I'm going to use? The book of Nehemiah. (laughs) Now, I promise today that I will not teach more than about 20 minutes. But I'll preach for an hour. (laughs) Amen? If you listen closely, you will understand. We all know that Nehemiah was a tremendous leader. But we've got to understand that it's more than just saying Jesus was a great leader or Nehemiah was a great leader or Moses was a great leader. We've got to figure out why they were great leaders. We have to understand these things because when we start understanding them, you can apply that truth and overlap it onto your life and see where you need to improve on. See what areas fall outside of that scriptural realm. 
And if you yourself know, and I'll get into leadership a little bit and about the whole concept of leadership, but I really want the Spirit of God to today, and not just today, but as a catalyst today, today forwards, especially those people who are taking the class on Nehemiah, I really want you to understand the person of Nehemiah. Because though it's awesome, and we will study, I'm sure, the building project of Nehemiah, we'll talk about all the areas in how many chapters? 14 chapters or whatever of Nehemiah. And I know Dr. Cottle will cover those greatly. But today I just want to talk about a few of the attributes of Nehemiah. Because then you will see why the Lord chose him. Then you will see why he was successful. And then hopefully we can take that teaching opportunity and we can make it into a preaching opportunity where you yourself can now take these attributes. You yourselves can see the character, apply it to yourself, and ask God to help you. First of all, we've got to say that Nehemiah was a man of prayer, amen? And I say this because this is foundational. Because if you are not a man or a woman of prayer, then everything else beyond that is immaterial. Now we're going to talk about Nehemiah and Nehemiah's courage, Nehemiah's sensitivity, and identifying himself with the people. But unless you are a man or a woman of prayer, then you will never obtain the other attributes of Jesus Christ. Because we know that it's only by the power of the Holy Spirit that sanctifies us, that changes us, that fluence from outside, the Spirit of God coming and transforming the inside. That's how we have the attributes of Jesus Christ. Amen? And so we have to understand that today is a day to say, and ask ourselves, am I a man or a woman of prayer? And it's not a question where you have to think about it. It's either yes or no. Either you are a person of prayer or you're not a person of prayer. Hopefully, if you're not a person of prayer, today you're saying in your heart, I want to be a person of prayer, amen? Because just because you call yourself Christian, just because you are a Christian, does not mean that you're a man or woman of prayer. Amen? And so we have to understand that Nehemiah was a man of prayer. And we have to understand that the rest of these things cannot happen unless we get to that discipline of prayer. And we have to understand also the question about the importance of prayer. Because we've been exhorted over and over again for many years, most of us, that the real battle isn't so much the devil, though he certainly tries to take advantage, but it's really ourselves. It's really the flesh within us that rebels against the ways of Christ. Amen? In the garden, it wasn't just a matter of there was a serpent in the garden or the devil was in the garden. It was really the flesh of Adam and Eve that was tempted, yes, but in themselves they had the wickedness to want to sin. The book of James tells us that we cannot say that God tempts us. Amen? So we cannot blame the fall of man, or the fall of Wayne, or the fall of Ty, or the fall of anyone directly on Christ. But it's only when we're tempted in our own sinful nature, the old lust within us finds fruition and wants to sin. Amen? The great contamination, I believe, of church leadership is fleshly ambition. And you've got to hear me out here. The great contamination of the church leadership, predominantly, is it is so impregnated with fleshly ambition. Ambition by itself will destroy a church. Human ambition. 
human leadership trying to be ambitious. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I have this goal. I have this goal. You do it on your own and you're ambitious. And how do you say, look at the biblical leaders. Look who God chose for leadership. Look at Moses. Was he ambitious to lead? No. He was reluctant to lead. Was Nehemiah going to a place and saying, well, I want to lead this rebuilding project? No. God prepared it in his heart. You almost look at every leader in the Bible, and they weren't ambitious as we understand the word ambitious. J. Oswald Sanders says, he basically quotes A.W. Tozer. A.W. Tozer, for years and years, used to speak strongly against the human ambition of leadership in the church. Because he understood that these men that would come out of these Bible colleges, they were so indoctrinated by this process of business-oriented leadership. Most of the Bible colleges today, they teach you to be a pastoral leader by business philosophies. Business. And I took classes at Northwest Bible College, and again, I'm not here to put down Northwest Bible College, but it's to say that they're probably reflective on the majority of Bible colleges in this country. And they really teach you in different classes about how to run a church almost from a business perspective. And isn't it interesting that the majority of pastors today, how do they get on a pastorate at a church? Well, they go to that Bible college, and what do they do? They have an interview. Amen? I have friends that are in leadership today, that are in churches today, that are pastors. And many of them with the very same story. They were in Bible college. They got an affiliation with a church. The church leader said, well, you're graduating this year. Why don't we go out? They have a couple hour lunch together. They talk about your resume, what you've done, and then they decide if you're going to hire or fire you. You know what I'm saying? That's how they decide who's going to be the leaders of their churches. That is the norm of the majority of churches in America today. Now, that's not biblical, amen? Biblical is to know who those who labor among you. And you cannot know a man or a woman in a couple hour interview. You can fool anyone for a few hours or a few days. Anyone can write a nice resume. And anyone can get good letters of recommendation, amen? How many people have gotten a bad letter of recommendation? You don't go to the person that's going to write you a bad letter. Everyone's got three or four people in their camp, <laughs> you know? But this is how the church does it. This is how the church defines its leadership. And they wonder what the problem is with the singles group. <laughs> they wonder what the problem is with the youth group. What's going on with it? There's this, it's, it's spiritually dead. You know, I was a part of a church that had a singles group, and I was a part of it for about four or five years, and it never grew. It was always the same size. It would, like this, but overall, four or five years, exactly the same. And I believe it's because of a lack of spiritual leadership. And again, you've got to define the difference between natural leadership and spiritual leadership. And we have to get out of the mentality of the natural mind. Now, a lot of things overlap. There's a lot of things that are in common with spiritual leadership and business leadership. But there's a lot of things that are different, amen? I want to highlight a couple of those today. And I'll even write them down for you. I'm going to put two columns here, and I'm going to put natural here and spiritual. The natural leader is self-confident. Isn't that true, though? When you meet a person that's a leader and is a good leader... They usually have a lot of confidence in themselves. They've seen their successes in the past, and those successes of the past propel them to successes today and tomorrow. They are self-confident. A spiritual leader is confident in God, confident in Jesus Christ. 
And then really what typifies this, when I think of confidence, a spiritual leader of confidence, I think of Paul. I think of his character because he never relied upon himself. He always considered himself dung as far as looking at his own self. Because he realized better than almost anyone in Scripture that if he took Christ apart from him, if you could do that just for a second, he is absolutely nothing. He understood that. But most leaders today really struggle with that. They really struggle with the combination of the natural and the spiritual confidence. And it's so easy when the Lord starts working through you and you start seeing signs and wonders, you start seeing good sermons, all of a sudden, this thing will challenge you. Self-confidence. Where to pretty soon, you think you can go up and do a good sermon, however you want to define that, or you can do signs and wonders without the confidence in Jesus Christ. And there's a lot of leaders today that are doing that. Do you know that you can have signs and wonders in your ministry and have very little confidence in the Lord? The Lord can use you to do signs and wonders. There are many ministers today that spend hardly any time with Christ, but the Lord still has signs and wonders through them. But we must be called to have a confidence in God and not in ourselves. Second of all, a natural leader. If he wants to be successful, he has to be a person who knows man. And so a leader in the natural realm, if you go to a big business and you talk about how you're going to be successful, one of the things is about who you know. Amen? It's all about who you know. It's true all the way through schooling and stuff. I mean, to get into some of the nicer schools, it's all about who you know. It's all about who you know. What connection do you have? If you can get an inside connection, then you have more leadership. You have more ability. It's all about who you know. But the spiritual man not only knows man, it's not wrong to have affiliations in ministry, amen? It's not wrong to have affiliations in your Christianity. But not only do you have the confidence in knowing man, but you know God. And that only comes through relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's key. The third area is that a natural leader makes his or her own decisions. And that makes sense, because if they don't have a Jesus Christ in their life, if they deny the lordship of the Jesus Christ, then they themselves are the center of the world, humanistic. They themselves, the rational mind, they're the one that makes decisions. But we know as Christians, we are called to find, seek, and find God's will. The natural leader is, and we talked about this already, ambitious. And many people, they think of ambitious, they think, well, it's okay to be ambitious. But I'm really trying to make the distinction between natural ambition. The ambition of a man or a woman to be successful can be very tempting to sin. The alluring part of having a successful ministry can be very tempting. And you read all over again, and pastor could probably repeat it over and over again. When people come together in pastor's conference, what kind of natural things do they talk about? They talk about, how many people did you have in your church last week? Amen? How many pastors do you have on your staff? I mean, this happens over and over again. This is not like the 1 out of 10. This is like the 8 out of 10. They're caught into these numbers thing. What are you doing for the Lord? What gifting do you have? They're caught into natural ambition. They're caught into success, how the world defines success. And the world defines success based on what? Based on numbers, Right? It's all about numbers. It's all about how much money you have. It's all about how big you are. And so many pastors out there, and many leaders out there, and many churches out there are into building programs, not because Jesus Christ inspired it, but because it's bigger. 
Amen? It's the glass cathedral. And I use that more symbolically. Building up that own little kingdom. I think we've heard that terminology before. And so what happens? Well, you start building that kind of kingdom. If you're ambitious in yourself, if you're self-confident, you can make it happen. If you have connections out there, then you'll start doing building programs. Amen? And those building programs will be what? They'll be financed by who? The bank. <laughs> Amen? Not financed by Jesus Christ. Not inspired by Jesus Christ. And so all of a sudden, we now we have leaders on the platform that are in a serious problem because now they have a huge need for monthly support, don't they? Because they got a big bill to pay. They just built a $2 million sanctuary. And they'll use the word, and I'm not saying that... Actually, I will say it. My personal belief is, almost always, it's probably not the will of the Lord to borrow from the bank to build a sanctuary. I'll never say always with God, but I'm saying just about every time, God would rather supply the funds and then say buy it. So I'll never say always, but I'm saying almost every time I believe it's the will of Jesus Christ for faith to arise that He can bring in the blessing. But instead of having trust in Jesus Christ, they have trust in who? Bank of America. I know I can get a loan for $2 million. Takes no faith. Self-confident. Knows man. I know Bank of America real well. This happens though, my friends. This is, this is daily church right here. This is how the majority do this thing called church. Where do they learn these tactics? Well, it's, it's business, isn't it? And so if you're going to be a successful pastor in the eyes of the world today, you better understand how to do these things. So the natural leader, or the natural church, or the natural Christian is ambitious, where the spiritual leader is self-effacing, or that's to say modest or unassuming. You know, when we look at Jesus' ministry, he wasn't, his first and foremost ambition was not numbers, was it? He wasn't all about numbers. If he was about numbers, he would not have preached those sermons. And that's really the problem when you start getting into areas of natural leadership. Unlike Nehemiah. Again, remember, we're talking about Nehemiah. And many of these areas, all these areas apply to Nehemiah. But I really want them to apply to us. Because I think we really need to be transformed in our mentality and our mind about what it really looks like to be a spiritual leader. Because what happens is when you get into these areas... And now all of a sudden you have a church and you're called pastor and you have a $2 million mortgage. Now you have a conflict of interest that you've just created for yourself. Because the very people that you're looking at, that you're supposed to be correcting and rebuking, and if they're in sin and they won't repent kicking out of your church, they're the very ones that need to pay this $2 million mortgage. That's a huge problem. That's a huge conflict of interest that you put yourself in by a lack of faith. Amen? That's critical to understand. If you have a conflict of interest, you better get out of it. Because it'll eat you alive. Next is, and this is something I'll spend a little more time on later because it's very important, is originates own methods. Versus finds or seeks and applies God's methods. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in a second. The natural leader enjoys commanding others. Where the spiritual leader delights to obey God. Now this area right here is so crucial because really, and I'm sure every single person has always run into this, is if you're into the natural leadership and you start relying on these areas, you begin to learn very subtle ways about how to lord it over people. 
Amen? I see this all the time. I mean, the pecking orders that are out there. I mean, I'm always in the middle of the pecking order, especially in medicine. There is a huge pecking order in medicine. Huge. And it's so huge that you constantly hear people talking about where they're at in the pecking order. Amen? And how do they define about where they're at in the pecking order? Well, it's about authority and it's about money, isn't it? <laughs> I'm not trying to pick on anyone here, but what do they call an LPN? They call themselves a low-paid nurse. Why? Because that's how they judge authority. That's how they judge their place. Who makes the most money in medicine? Doctors make the most money. And they, I mean, if you've ever worked with a doctor, I am so pleased about where I work because really I don't have to deal with this because almost everyone in my clinic is a Christian. But you know the majority of people out there that are doctors? My mom works with secular doctors and I tell you, they can be some of the most arrogant, self-confident, make your own decisions, ambitious, originate their own methods of morality and how things are supposed to be done, and they enjoy commanding others. Oh, they love this part right here. They love it. Power. I remember studying in psychology, and if you've ever taken any psychology classes, I can't remember, and it helped me out if you remember, there was a study done back, and I think it was either the 60s or 70s, where they took normal people, and they made two groups out of them. One was security officers, or whatever you want to call them. The other group was prisoners. And they ran this study out for like, I don't know if it was three or four months, just to see what would happen with normal individuals when you put them in two different classes, would they start acting differently. And they started really acting differently. They started persecuting them. Because the whole situation was set up was, these are prisoners, they committed crimes, you are in authority with them. You make sure they do what they're supposed to do. And they would actually start persecuting them. They did another one that had to do with shocking the person. And so they had this little sensor on their finger. And I don't remember the whole study. I don't know if someone else remembers it, let me know. But they used to be on the other side of the board where you could not see the other person. And if a person got an answer wrong or did something wrong, you'd shock them. And it was funny to see that as the time progression went, they had an area of intensity where they could intensify the shock. would intensify so you put people in power conditions with natural leadership and they enjoy demonstrating their authority and their power. And they'll even persecute. I mean, look at the persecution of many Christians in different countries throughout the world. You say in your mind, you say, how could somebody possibly torture somebody? I mean, when I read that book on history of Christianity in America, I believe it was in, it was in part one. And remember what the Indians would do to certain Christians? I mean, it almost, just reading it makes you want to vomit. I mean, skinning the individual in front of their children. I mean, obviously demonic. But the thing is here, that demonic, yes, but we cannot blame it first and foremost on demons. We've got to blame it this area right here, subjecting yourself to demonic influence. Because the flesh longs to lord it over, longs to command, longs to have its way, to make new methods, my way. I don't care about your way. And we see this all through business. We see it through medicine. And unfortunately, we see it in the church. I mean, what was Jesus preaching against? What was Jeremiah preaching against? He was preaching against pastors, shepherds that were what? They were lording over their influence on the congregation. Amen? The natural man, the natural leader. Here's another big one. Motivated by personal considerations. Motivated by personal considerations, the spiritual leader, motivated by love for God and man. So the natural leader is motivated by personal considerations. What does that look like? That looks like, what can you do for me? 
Amen? A new relationship. What can you do for me? How might I best exact your talents to further my talents? Amen? That's the natural leader. We look at everyone as what? An asset. A potential asset. And we're looking for ways that you can better me. I don't really care about you. I care about you only in the fact that I can somehow use you to better myself. This is a natural leader. But a spiritual leader, this is their motivation. A love, and it really should say agape love, shouldn't it? Agape love for God, which again always comes from God. We only can return agape love because we received it first. And it's that agape love that Christ gives us for man. Well, we don't look at our fellow brothers and sisters as assets. Or what can you do for me? There is a lot of churches out there that when new people come in the door, all the leaders are right to them. How can I plug them in? But again, this is not consideration for who they are as people. We are supposed to, as leaders, look at a person that comes in, see what the will of Jesus Christ is for their life, not your will. Yes, your ministry may need three or four people to help it out. And our ministry has a similar situation where we have many ministries that are run thin, don't we? But our motivation when somebody comes through this front door is not what can they can do for me. Wait a second, I can plug them into my ministry. So we've we got to be very careful as a ministry and very careful as department heads about seeing the will of Christ for somebody's life and not your will. Because it's very easy to try to get into this natural leadership tendency and say, wait a second, people judge me based on my leadership. People judge me about how good a department head I am. This gets into some of the areas we talked about today in worship about how people might perceive me. And we have a lot of strong encouragement to be successful leaders, and we should, but we got to do it God's way, don't we? And if somebody comes to the door and you say, wait a second, I'm strung thin here, this person can better me. You might not use that terminology, that's the interpretation. And you start using people, and you start looking at them after the flesh instead of after the spirit. This is a strong temptation in the church. So what happens? Well, that's fine. So now you've got a person on your camp helping you out. But what happens in three or four months from now? When they're doing something that's far apart from their calling, they die out. They dry up. They're not successful. And then there's friction between the, you know what I'm saying? It never works out your way. But you find out where the person's at, you put them in a proper spot. You know what, this is another thing that happens in churches all the time. Somebody comes to the door, let's say the worship leader is the person, that's the department head, the worship leader, says, you know what, we're real thin on singers, but that person has a great voice. Or, that person can really play the drums. And so what happens? Ah, that's the qualifications. You're hired. Now, that's not the terminology they use, but that's really what happens. You fit the bill. I need a drummer. You're drumming. And so now we have what? We have a person up there on the platform that they themselves are in total shambles. We don't care they care about their lives, really. You know what I'm saying? Just lead us into the presence of Christ. Play that instrument. Sing that song. Do you know if you go into most churches today, unfortunately, the choir's got big problems. And so really that cliche of preaching to the choir doesn't hold any longer, does it? Because the choir is usually the place that has the most problems. I mean, I knew the choir of churches that I went to. I mean, I told you the story of me, back in the day, slinging lattes at a church. <laughs> and I'm the one that got to see that choir come out from there and to see what they were talking about right after they led us into the presence of Jesus. And it really, the Lord ministered to me through it, to teach me a lesson. That it doesn't matter what you call yourself, you could be called pastor, you could be called choir member, song leader, 
And you could be so far from Jesus Christ. You've got to understand that, folks. It's not about labels. It's about spiritual reality. And that fruit can be seen. That fruit can be discerned. You can't hide that forever. Because out of the what? Out of the abundance of the heart, what? The man speaks. You can't help it. You can help it for a two-hour interview, but you can't help it over a period of time. What's really in your heart, what's really interesting to you, what you really care about, you're going to talk about it. And I get to see that all the time. Straight off the platform, leading people in the presence of Christ, and they're talking about everything that's so far from Jesus Christ. And many times, talking about business. Talking about what they're doing in business. Computers, this, that, the other. Amen? How did I get to that tangent? Motivated by personal considerations. And so again, there's churches that do this all the time. They put people in places of leadership that are not qualified for leadership. I believe that anyone that has any leadership on a platform, whether it's called pastor or whether it's called drummer boy, you've got to know their life. You've got to know them. They've got to be discipled. They've got to be clean. Because why? Because you're going to use them to usher the people in the presence of Christ. So that's important to know. The last one I want to talk about here is this natural leader is independent. Okay, and the spiritual leader is what? God-dependent. God-dependent. And we've kind of alluded to that already. So now that we've kind of went on that tangent, I want to come back and talk about, again, I believe that this is a constant struggle. You cannot go to a Christian today or a leader in the church today and say, that man or woman is in this category or that woman is in this category. It's always both. And you've got to understand that. If you're saying you're only in this, then your doctrine is, a doctrine that I do not agree with, is that the sinful nature is gone at conversion. And I reject that. And pastor rejects that. So therefore, you're wrong. But that's true. I mean, this, there's a lot of people in the church that believe that once you become to conversion, that the sinful nature is eradicated. And I wrote a nice paper about that to a professor at Northwest College. Gave me an A, but he didn't agree with me, about the sinful nature. Because he believed that at conversion, the sinful nature is gone. So you can't say that someone's mature or someone's immature. You're always on a continuum, isn't it? It's not a yes or no. Sanctification isn't yes or no. You can't go, are you sanctified? Yes or no. It's yes and no. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's always a continuum. And it's the same thing here. Every single pastor, every apostle, every prophet, every evangelist, every Christian, every choir person, every spiritual leader, they are both in these categories. But their goal is sanctification. Their goal is to progress this way, isn't it? To progress this way. You know, I really was touched by a leader once. I'll even say who it is. Dr. Mum. A few of you know Dr. Mum, Dr. Lau, from the church down in Mercer Island. I really learned a lot from him one day because he met me at the hospital one time, at Overlake Hospital. He's a surgeon. Because he just wanted to talk to me and get to know me. So we talked for a couple hours, and he, it really taught me. Because the fact that it stuck with me today shows how much it had an impact on me. He was transparent with me. He said, you know what, Ty? I was tempted in the flesh to look at you with motivation for personal consideration. I'm using my own terminology. This is what he said. He says, I was tempted to look at you for personal consideration about how you might fit into my church. This is before we had a fellowship. Okay? And he said, I prayed all the way here that I wouldn't do that. That deeply touched me. Because that really shows that we are always here. And we're always battling against this natural mind that wants to be self-confident, that wants to, to use connections, whether it be man or bank, who wants to make their own decisions. My will be done. My kingdom be established. That's ambitious in a worldly sense. That originates their own methods to get the job done. Who enjoys commanding others. Are motivated by fleshly or worldly considerations. 
and they're independent. We are independent in the flesh. God calls us to be what? To be codependent on each other, right? To be interdependent. The body of Christ, it must be. By definition, it's supposed to be interdependence. And many people struggle, and all people struggle, with being independent. Isn't that true? Independence. We don't want to rely on each other. What happens when we struggle with something? We have an area of concern. We're really burdened with something. What is our natural tendency to do? Pull away, isn't it? Pull away. So finally, there's a place where everyone's saying, Brother so-and-so, it is so obvious that you're struggling. Can I somehow help you? Praise God for that, huh? You can't hide it when you're struggling. That's why it's important to be transparent with one another. Praise the Lord. So we are our worst enemy. I want to read you a poem. This is by Amy Carmichael. Listen closely to this. God hardened me against myself, the coward with pathetic voice, who craves the ease and rest and joy, myself arch-traitor to myself, my hollowedest friend, my deadliest foe, my clog, whatever road I go. Did you capture that? She understood that her own worst enemy was who? It was herself. She's the one that was really the catalyst or the hindrance to personal revival. Is it God's will that we be in personal revival? Does he, sit, does he look down at his children and say, well, I'm not really wanting them to be in personal revival right now. It is always Jesus' will that we're in personal revival. It is always Jesus' will that a corporate fellowship is in revival. It's always his will. What's revival mean? To not be dead. That's what revival means. To not be dead. To not be here. Because this way leads where? To death. There's a way that seems right unto man. But therein at the end it leads to death. This is what personal revival is. God's will for a person or for a congregation or for a city or for a country is revival, revival, revival. It shouldn't be the one flicker out there. It should be the norm. That's what he desires. He longs to lavish us with that. All that is is going from here to here. Being transformed in your mind. When he commands you to be transformed in your mind, what he's saying is you're here and I want you to go this way. Be transformed in your mind. There was a church once that was in revival for a couple of years. And all of a sudden, there was some sin that got entered into that camp. And they weren't in revival anymore. And you know what the preacher from the pulpit says? He used that, was it Ecclesiastes? There's a time for this and a time for that. I say that, there's a time to repent. <laughs> Amen? Because he's trying to say that there's a time for revival, and there's a time for preparation and growth and teaching. That's nice. But what you're saying is you can't have teaching and growth and discipleship and not have revival? Are they mutually exclusive? No. God always wants revival. And if you're making excuses why there's no revival, it's because there's sin in the camp that has not been dealt with. There is no time for no revival. No time. There is no acceptable time for no revival. If there's no revival in a person's life, it isn't God's fault, it's your fault. If there's no revival in a congregation, it's not God's fault, it's their fault. You've got to accept that. If you don't accept that, you'll make excuses. Amen? And you'll be like the Unitarians. Lord, I can't repent. As soon as you make me repent, I'll repent. This is what Finney went against so often. Okay, praise the Lord. So Nehemiah was a man of prayer. I just want to go over a couple of scriptures with you. 
One of the most famous prayers in all the Bible. And if you want to learn how to pray, first read the Lord's Prayer, and then read this prayer. Because there is so much. We could spend a couple hours just talking about these seven or eight verses or whatever it is. Because it is so packed. And really, the nice thing about it is, if you want to learn about some of the aspects, and we'll get into them briefly today, about the aspects of the leadership of Nehemiah, it's right in this prayer. Let's read it from chapter 1. We'll start in verse 1. The words or story of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, now in the month of Chislev, in the twentieth year of the Persian king, as I was in the castle of Shishan, Hanani, one of my kinsmen, came with certain men from Judah and asked them about the surviving Jews who had escaped exile and about Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the providence who escaped exile are in great trouble and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its fortified gates are destroyed by fire. When I heard this, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and fasted and prayed constantly before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God, who keeps covenant, loving kindness, and mercy for those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to listen to the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you day and night for the Israelites, your servants, confessing the sins of the Israelites, which we have sinned against you. Yes, I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, statutes, and ordinance which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember what you commanded your servant Moses. If you transgress and are unfaithful, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts were in the farthest parts of the heavens, the expanses of outer space, yet will I gather them from them, and I will bring them to a place in which I have chosen to set my name. Now these are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere and fear your name and prosper, I pray you, your servant this day and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. For I was cupbearer to the king. Now my goal today is not to, I mean really we could spend so much time on that prayer because when I think of the great prayers of the Bible, this is like one of the top two or three. There is so much power, so much theology, and so much teaching on spiritual leadership, about spiritual authority right there in that prayer. The key verse there, verse 11. I'm going to read verse 11 again. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere and fear your name. Quickly, I just want to go a couple different ones just so you can understand the prayer life. In the book of Nehemiah, chapter 2 and verse 4, it says, The king said to me, For what do you ask? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Chapter 4 in verse 4. These are ones you can reference also in your own time if you write them. And it says in verse 4 of chapter 4, And Nehemiah prayed, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their taunts upon their own heads and give them for a prey in the land of their captivity. Chapter 5 and verse 19. O oh my God, earnestly remember me for good for all I have done for this people. Chapter 6 and verse 14. My God, think on Tobiah and Sambal according to those of their works and on the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who have put me in fear. Chapter 13, if you skip a couple chapters. 
In verse 14, O oh my God, earnestly remember me concerning the, and wipe not out my good deeds and kindnesses done for the house of my God and for his service. In verse 22, And I commanded the Levites to cleanse themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. O oh my God, earnestly remember the concerning this also and spare me according to the greatness of your mercy and loving kindness. In verse 29, O oh my God, remember them because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priests and Levites. Just a couple of sample passages. So his life of prayer allowed him to understand the heart of God, the will of God, and the methods of God. It is by that prayer that we can make this transformation right here. It is by prayer that we know what God has. We know His heart. He transformed our carnal nature. This is where our carnal nature finds itself expressing itself. This is what the carnal nature looks like. But Jesus desires that we go into that prayer closet so it can be transformed from this into this so we can know his heart. Amen? A couple of aspects of the leadership of Nehemiah also with him, Ezra. As they themselves rediscovered the methods of God. In chapter 8, verses 1 through 8, there's a restoration of the authority of the word of God. In chapter 8 and verse 14, there was the restoration of the Feast of Tabernacles. In chapter 9, verses 3 through 5, there's the reading of the word, which restores relationship by confession of sin and repentance. Remember when they heard the word of God, it was so, I mean, they talked about it, it says like for half a day they read the word of God. And how did the people respond? So first there was a restoration of the word of God, which was not the law of the land any longer. Under Nehemiah's influence and leadership, he restores the word of God as the standard of faith. And what comes out of it as soon as they hear the, the word of God, it's matched up against the people and they can see their sin. They can agree with Jesus Christ and say, we have sinned against you. There is a restoration not only of the word of God, but there's a restoration of biblical repentance, which we talked about a couple weeks ago. Chapter 13, verses 4 through 9, is a restoration and cleanliness before God in which they cleanse the temple of Tobiah's sacrilegious furniture. Again, the Lord in the book of Leviticus and other places in the Old Testament showed how the temple was supposed to be. And yet, in their arrogance, what they do? They found their own methods, their own decisions, the carnal nature, the carnal leadership. And they decided they'll do it their own way. They'll have their own furniture and how they want to decorate the temple. It's their way. But you remember how explicit Jesus Christ was about how things are supposed to be done? And they said, no, no, no. We'll make our own decisions here because they were self-confident in their self. And they made their own methods. And they work independently of the Scriptures and of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 13 and verse 9, there's a restoration of the holy vessels. And they were instituted after the cleansing of Tobiah's sacrilege. Chapter 13 and verse 5, there's a restoration of the tithe to the treasury. Chapter 13 and verse 15, there's a restoration of the Sabbath, which had been desecrated for years. And finally, under Nehemiah's leadership, there's a restoration of it. Chapter 13, verses 23 through 25, there's a restoration of relationships. And that intermarriage with surrounding countries were terminated. And the separation from them was affected. So here we are with Nehemiah in prayer. And this really, the only reason I want to put this up is because I want people to understand that we constantly battle on these two columns. And that we must be men and women of prayer because if you do not pray by default, you find yourself here. The default is a sinful nature. Unless you allow the Spirit of God to come within and direct you this way, then this is default right here. This is where you'll reside. 
You, without even thinking about it, will take advantage of people. You'll look at them after the flesh. You'll do things independently of the Word of God and the Spirit of God. You'll be self-confident. You'll make up your own methods. This is where you'll be unless you pray. And one more point that needs to be made. It's only by prayer because that is really the relationship. It's only by prayer and relationship. That is the only way you can come here. There is no other way, praise God for it, that you can get here. The old adage that all the ground at the foot of the cross is level for you and for me. It's the same conditions, isn't it? And that really is the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because if you look at so many other religions out there, they predominate in here and it's all about who you know. It's all about where you're at in that system. We're this and you're that. But Jesus says, no, come to me, all ye who are weary. Come to me and I will feed you. I will teach you. I will put this in you. But it will only come through prayer. And Nehemiah demonstrated it. Praise the Lord. we got to be men and women of prayer. I ask you today, are you a man or a woman of prayer? Are you a man or a woman of prayer? Nehemiah was also a man of courage. It's been said that courage is fear that has said its prayers. You heard that one? Courage is fear that said its prayers. All of us have fear, don't we? But it's not a question about do you have fear. It's about what do you do with the fear. That is the crucial thing. I mean, God even made us that we would have fear about certain things. It's healthy to have a certain kind of fear. But there's areas of fear which can bind you up and cause you to go into depression and all sorts of other problems. But my question is, when you're fearful about doing something you know is right to do, what do you do? Courage is fear that said its prayers. I want to use Nehemiah chapter 6 to talk about his courage. Nehemiah chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Now when Sambalat, Tobiah, Geshem, and Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall, and that there was no breach left in it, although at that time I had not set the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, let us meet together in one of the villages, in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come to them. How do you think he knew that they were planning on doing great harm to him? It doesn't say, does it? But we probably, I mean, by the fact that it doesn't say, I bet it's by a word of wisdom, a word of knowledge. He understood and discerned that he wasn't supposed to go to that meeting. Isn't that crucial? I mean, we have to make those decisions every day. Pastor Hanson and the team, when they're down in Jamaica, they got to make these decisions every day. Because there's people out there that will try to make a meeting with them because they want to do harm. Amen? If they always live in here and they're self-confident and they don't have confidence in the Lord and don't want to know the methods of the Lord, then they're going to make bad decisions and get themselves in big trouble. But if they're prayerful men, which they are, if they're discerning and have wisdom, then they're in this area. And they'll instantly know the confirmation by the Holy Spirit about which meeting to do and which to not. Nehemiah demonstrated this as well. They sent to me four times this way, and I answered them as before. Then Sambalat sent his servant to me again, the fifth time, with an open letter. And it was written, It is reported among the neighboring nations, and Gashmu says, that you and the Jews plan to rebel. Therefore you are building the wall, that you may be their king according to the report. Isn't this interesting? So here's the enemy standing against the man or woman of God. So put yourself in that position. First he tries to make a meeting with you so he can cause you harm. That didn't work. 
What was his next thing? To slander and gossip against you. To make up lies against you. To try to defame your character. Isn't that how the devil works through man? If he can't get you head on, well, fine. I'll just defame your character. I'll just make up lies against you. This is exactly what happened. The tabloids aren't a new thing, are they? I mean, they were sending tabloids all over about lies about Nehemiah and his motivation for rebuilding this wall, inciting rebellion that he was trying to rebel against the laws of the land. So we're in verse 7 of chapter 6. Also, you have set up prophets to announce concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. And now this will be reported to the Persian king. So come now and let us take counsel together. I reply to him, no such thing as you say has been done. You are inventing them out of your own heart and mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will be so weak that the work will not be done. But now strengthen my hands. I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, the son of Mahedabal, who was shut up. He said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple and let us shut the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you. At night they are coming to kill you. But I said, should such a man as I flee? And what man such as I could go into the temple where only the priests are allowed to go and yet live? I will not go in. And behold, I saw that God had not sent him, but he made this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambelet had hired him. He was hired that I should be made afraid and do as he said and sin that they might have matter for an evil report with which to taunt and reproach me. Now that's interesting because you can really see how man works through the influence of the devil. Key verse there. Verse 13, He was hired that I should be made afraid and do as he said and sin, that they might have matter for an evil report with which to taunt and reproach me. So what sin? Nehemiah says if he would have done those things, he would have sinned. What sin was it? Well, I think the first sin is the most practical, and that's the preservation of the flesh, amen? All of a sudden, people are coming to kill you. That was the prophecy given to him. What's the natural man do? What's the man that's in this area, that's independent, that makes his own decisions and self-confident? When someone's coming to kill you, what do you do? You hide, you flee. That's the natural man. So first of all, it's that self-preservation. Now, I believe this is so important for us. No one's giving you or me right now a prophecy that someone's going to come and kill you tomorrow. But what about what happens in five or ten years from now where you might be in a position where it might cost your life to be called Christian? When are you going to make the decision about how you're going to respond? It's got to be today, doesn't it? It can't be when the gun's at the head because you'll compromise. Because you're so reliant on here. And so that's important to remember. The second area of sin is to break a law or principle of God with justification of human wisdom. He was not supposed to go into the temple and hide. Why? Because he was not a priest. The temple was a place that priests could only go. And so someone was coming to him and saying, in a, basically a prophetic word, that people are coming to kill you. We should go hide in the temple. And Nehemiah says right here, how can a man such as I? What he was meaning for, and what the Amplified Version translates, is because it is a place for the priests. That's why he didn't want to go in there. It wasn't just because he didn't want to flee, which is probably true, because that was the wrong place to flee. That was a place ordained by God, in the law of God, for priests to be, and he was not a priest. That's nice, that's teaching, but what about the preaching? 
Well, there's many people today that come to us, and for different motivations, they want us to break a law of God to try to satisfy the natural man, don't they? They try to get us to compromise. They try to get us entertained in gossip or slander. They try to pull us away by telling us to do something that we know is a conflict of interest with Jesus Christ. And it takes courage to stand up against that. It takes a prayerful person that is established deep within their heart that they do not want to sin against the ways of Jesus. Because if you haven't made up that mind, like Augustine, I believe it was Augustine that had a struggle with lust. One of the famous quotes by Augustine early in his life was, Lord, deliver me from lust. But not yet. We can't be like that. We have to be people that have made that decision that whatever that hard part in your life is, if your struggles with lust, if it's with gossip, it doesn't matter what we got to make that determination. I will not, I do not want to sin against the Lord. Because there will be people that come, influenced by the devil, to tempt you. Again, we're not fighting flesh and blood. Don't get caught up in the person. There's a devil behind that person that's trying to get you. He knows your weaknesses. Have you made a determination in your heart through prayerful consideration that you will not sin against the Lord? He works the same way. His temptations are always the same. But we, in our fleshly mind, if we're always in this area, then we fulfill the scripture that says it's like a dog returning to its own vomit. Amen? We are so often like the dog returning to your own vomit. We are as stupid as sheep in the natural man, and we'll just go right through the slaughter, won't we? We'll walk right into it, even though we walked right into it yesterday. And then we cried out in unbiblical repentance, Oh, Lord, I'm grieved. I sinned against you. Remember that? But didn't have a biblical repentance, didn't have a real transformation of the heart. So the very next day, Satan says, Ah, there's no repentance, there's no change there. He can just do the same exact temptation. You walk right into the slaughter. And this is the rhythm we get into in our lives. It only can be broken through biblical repentance. It only can be broken by casting yourself to the feet of Jesus. Don't cast yourself to man. Don't go to man. Don't go to people around you. Don't find your own method of repentance. This is what man does. It's called, I will say, this many Hail Marys. This rosary, that rosary. This is man's way of finding a new method to reconcile themselves, to reconcile their grief when they sin. Because we have grief when we sin. Unless you're dead. Unless you're so cut off from your sin that you could care less. But most people, when they sin, they have grief. And they want to rectify it. They want to get rid of it. How do they do it? Well, this man casts himself to other people. Finds new motivations and new ways to get rid of the grief. The spiritual man is God-dependent and throws himself, like Peter, out of the boat and swims to his Lord. Amen? So when the whirlwind hits, how does the godly leader respond? He responds this way, the spiritual man. Chapter 6 and verse 9. This is how he responds. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will be so weak that the work will not be done. But now strengthen my hands. Amen? I love that verse. But now strengthen my hands is the cry of Nehemiah. This is what he prays. Lord, strengthen my hands. My enemy's coming. You can almost see and discern and sense the surrender in him. As he lifts up his hands to the Lord and says, Now strengthen my hands so that I can do the will of God. So that I will be faithful. So I will not compromise. So I will not get into this thing. They're threatening me. It's easy for me to find comfort in my neighbor. To find a way, human wisdom, to get out of this. 
But Lord, strengthen my hands so I can stay right here. So I can stay true to your word. Amen? That takes courage. Praise the Lord. Nehemiah was a man of courage. Nehemiah identified himself with and had concern for the people. We talked about, when we read the great prayer in chapter 1. In the end of that prayer, in verse 10, it says, Now these are your servants, speaking of the people of Israel, and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Nehemiah, in that prayer, it's such a powerful prayer, because what does he do? He prays, he fasts, and he weeps. Why? It wasn't just for the gates, the physical structure. But I think the biggest thing that burdened him was the people, his people, who were living in shambles. It was the people of God that burdened Nehemiah. And he cries out to God because he wants to make a place that's suitable for the people of God. You know what? I don't think he probably was ever in Judah. He was most likely probably born in Babylon, long after the captivity. But he has been told story after story about the great temple built by who? Solomon. Isn't that true? Of the magnificence, of the influence of Jerusalem, the city that God built. He'd heard all the stories. And now what's the testimony? It's shabbles. There's nothing. It's rubble. And the people there, the mindset. If you've ever been in a third world country, you'll notice very quickly, and you can get this in the inner cities of America, but the people become disparaged, they become depressed, and you can see that their lifestyle, they don't take care of anything anymore. I don't know if you've ever seen that before. But I've seen it in the different countries I've gone to, is that the people, classic places in America, Indian reservations. If you go through an Indian reservation, I, believe me, I pray that the kingdom of God come to the Indians. I'm not trying to say anything disparaging against the Indians. But if you go through the majority of Indian reservations, you will see a place that's in shabbles. You will see garbage all over the place. You'll see abandoned cars all over the place. They do not take care of their stuff any longer. And it's like that throughout the world. And I believe that when Nehemiah came, Nehemiah didn't come after he got there with his, all his stuff. He didn't have all these people standing there with their shovels and picks in their hands saying, let's go at it. That is not the people that Nehemiah had on his side. The people have been living in poverty and rubbles, and I believe their mentality probably was so much like many people in the third world country or the Indians. They had no faith. They were probably sitting there saying, this is us, this is our situation. Amen? And he had to do something. His love for the people, he had to instill faith. So the city was destroyed from previous invasions. The walls of the city were leveled. Gates destroyed. They had been in this state for some time, and the mentality of the people was numb to progress. But you know what Nehemiah did? He raised the morale of the people. Chapter 2 and verse 19 says, But when Sanballat the Hornite and Tobiah, the servant, the Amorite, the Geshem, the Arab, heard of it, they laughed at us to scorn and despise us and said, What is this thing you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? Verse 20 says, I answered them, The God of heaven will prosper us. Therefore, we his servants will rise and build. But you have no portion or right in Jerusalem. The God of heaven will prosper us. He had to build the morale of the people. This is what a spiritual leader will do. Chapter 8 and verse 10 says, Be not depressed, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So faith in what? That the project wasn't simply ordained by man, but it was ordained by God. When God gives a vision or a dream to a person, they've got to have the leadership to instill that to the people, don't they? And so oftentimes, why people don't get visions and dreams because God knows if he gave a vision or dream to the person, they wouldn't be able to do anything with it. 
Because they don't have the character, they don't have that time of prayer to have the courage and faith to make the thing happen. If God tells you, gives you a vision or a dream, that there's a leader of a big church that's going to have serious problems soon, but if you are still fearful of man, you don't have the courage because you haven't spent enough time with Jesus, then he's going to give that vision to somebody else. That's met those conditions. That's spent that time. Faith breeds faith and doubt breeds doubt. Godly leaders eradicate doubt and instill faith. Leadership is influence, whether good or bad. This is something that we really need to hear today. Because every single person, adult in here especially, you have leadership whether you want it or not. Because leadership is what? Just influence. All of us have some influence on some people. The question is, do we use that influence for good or bad? That's why it's critical if you're any kind of leadership in a ministry, and we'll just make it personal, like when you come here, that's why it's critical that you enter into intercessory prayer and pre-service prayer. Why? Because people that are influenced by you, and different people have a different amount of influence, but if they look at you as someone, as a leader in their life, as someone that gives influence, then if they see you doing something else, that justifies them to not to do it. Amen? <laughs> this is why it's so critical, if you're an adult and you're a leader, that you use your leadership for the good and not the bad. That when we come together for corporate worship, corporate prayer, that you are doing that thing, getting involved. That you're not talking and holding conversations. I see that quite often. And the conversations might be important, but there's a time for conversations and there's a time for prayer. Amen? And if I go out to pre-service prayer, and I say, wait a second, I forgot to tell something to Brother Wayne, and I go up when everyone's praying and start talking to Brother Wayne, and the other people that see me as a leader, they say, wait a second, he's not praying, he's talking, that justifies me, I can go talk. You see how that works? All of us have leadership, to some degree, for the good or for the bad. Your decision in your life, beyond reproach, is to constantly be in this area so that you can do things that prosper the kingdom through your leadership. Amen? That's why it's so important. That's why I want to be built up with expectation and faith. Because I want to come here expecting that I'm going to encounter Jesus. If you don't expect that, the fruit of your life is why would you pray and intercede for something you don't expect to happen anyway? Why would you invest that time? What's your concept of worship? Is it just a rite? Is it just a thing you do? Or is it really an encounter with Jesus Christ? If it's not really an encounter for Jesus Christ, why would you take the investment to do it? This is why it's so crucial that leaders are disciplined in these areas. Because other people will justify their own sin and their own laziness when they see a leader doing something apart from what they should be doing. This is why it's crucial. Chapter 4, verse 7. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabians, Ammonites, and Ashadites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were going up, and that the breaches were being closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem, to endure and cause confusion and failure in it. But because of them, we made our prayer to our God, and we set a watch against them day and night. And the leaders of Judah said, The strength of the burden bears is weakening, and there is much rubbish. We are not able to work on the wall. And our enemies said, They will not know or see till we come into their midst and kill them and stop the work. And when the Jews who lived near them came, they said to us ten times, You must return from all places where they dwell. They will be upon us. So I sat behind the wall in places where it was least protected. 
I even thus used the people as families with their swords, spears, and bows. I looked them over and rose up and said to the nobles and officials and the other people, Do not be afraid of the enemy. Earnestly remember the Lord and imprint him on your minds, great and terrible, and take from him courage to fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. And when our enemies heard that their plot was known to us and that God had frustrated their purpose, we all returned to the wall, everyone to his work. And from that time forth, half of my servants worked at the task, and the other half held the spears, shields, bows. And the leaders stood behind all the house of Judah. Those who built the wall and those who bore burdens loaded themselves, so that everyone worked with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And every builder had his sword girded by his side, and so worked. And he who sounded the trumpet was at my side. Praise the Lord. Take the courage. Amen. Get a plan from the Lord. Jeremiah was a person that could hear the cry of the people. He was a person that heard. Many times there was complaints. Sometimes they were righteous. Sometimes they were fleshly. But he always heard the complaints of the people. And when they were legitimate complaints, he reenacted order. He played the advocate for him. And so Nehemiah was not only a man of prayer, but a man of courage. He's a person that identified and had concern for the people. You know what the fruit of Nehemiah's ministry is? The real fruit of it is, is this one verse, and it's so simple. Chapter 6 and verse 15. Chapter 6 and verse 15 says, So the wall was finished. And that really is the fruit of the leadership of Nehemiah. And so the wall was finished. You know how long it took that wall around the city that was in rubbles? Can you imagine coming to a city like the size of Jerusalem? And having a wall that surrounded the whole entire city that was built up and, you know, I don't know how high those walls were. 20 feet, more. Can you imagine coming to a city that size and all of it's just rubble all over, all around the whole city and being commissioned by the Lord to somehow get this thing back together? That is a big project. How long did it take them? 52 days. That's a fast project. <laughs> that is awesome. You can start to appreciate the leadership that Nehemiah had to do. But you know what? He was wise. It says that when he went to Jerusalem, when he first got there, what did he do? He's saying, ah, I've been sent by the Lord to rebuild the wall. No, it says he was there for three days before he said one thing. Why? Because it says that he went out when? At night to survey the wall. Why? Because he knew that he had to get a perspective. He had to get a plan. He had to see what was going on. It's like Brother Wayne, who in some ways is the builder of the physical walls here. If pastor says, I want you to do this project, Brother Wayne, Brother Wayne can't say, all right, it'll take me this many days. He's got to go survey the thing. He's got to figure it out. He's got to look at it. Then he tear it up a little bit and take a look at what's going on. Then he has to pray and meditate and say, what's the wise thing here? Well, how am I going to get these things done? Give me a plan. And then he presents the plan. But you can't get people to back behind you. You can't be a spiritual leader if you yourself don't understand the project at hand. You can't just walk into a church as a new pastor and all of a sudden start acting out things the very first day. I tell you, those people will flee you so fast. You've got to spend that symbolic three days. Will that be three days or three months? Surveying the situation, amen? And this is really what pastor is calling us to do as leaders, as department heads. Stand back for three days, symbolically. What's going on here? Look at the area. Look at the project. Look what the Lord is doing here in television, in radio, in intercessory prayer. Take a look and get a plan. The Lord's plan, the Lord's strategy. And then work it. Amen? 
But the scripture explicitly tells us these things. It tells us that he went to Jerusalem and was there three days and at night, with a very small amount of people, the scripture says, he went and surveyed the whole area. At night. Why? Because he didn't want to do it out in public right now. He was trying to gather the plan, the strategy. Praise the Lord. So that's the fruit of Nehemiah's leadership. So the wall was completed. And today, we have been called to build walls. We have been called to build the church without walls, too. But what I want to really ask you is, what is the wall the Lord has asked you to build? What is the commission the Lord has on your life to build? And do you demonstrate the characteristics of a Nehemiah, who was a man basked in prayer, a man who had great courage, a man who could be sensitive to the people around him, who took identity with him. Remember that prayer he said in chapter 1? He says, I have sinned against you. Identifying the sin of the land. When we talk about America, we can't talk about America in some disparaging way where we say, oh America, we have sinned against the Lord. Are you an American? Then we have sinned against the Lord. Amen? If you want to be a true leader, you've got to identify yourself to the people. And not just in their sorrows, you've got to identify with the people in their sin. Nehemiah said right there, I and our fathers have sinned against you, Lord. Identifying. If he wanted to identify him in a way to rebuild the wall, he had to identify with the problem. He had to identify with the situation. And so he said, Lord, I have sinned against you. Because he understood that he was part of the body, the greater body. And we are part of the body of Christ. We I, we have sinned against the Lord. The church in America, Lord, forgive me. I have sinned against you. Because I am part of the body. I am part of the problem. Amen? He wants to use every single person to remedy the problem. But all of us are the problem. When he judges the church, when he judges America, I'm going to be there too. Amen? I'm not going to underneath the wrath of God. But when he comes with persecution, there are going to be Christians who die. Amen? You've got to understand that. There are going to be Christians who die when there's judgment on America, there's going to be Christians, born again, spirit-filled Christians, who will die in the judgment. I mean, I never heard the statistics, but I'm sure that even in the Twin Towers, I'm sure there was Christians that died, amen? I'm sure there was Christians. So when the judgment comes to a land, we have to identify with it. When we pray and intercede for a city or for this country, we need to pray like Nehemiah. Lord, forgive us. We have sinned. I have sinned against you. You can't separate yourself from the problem and think that you're going to be able to attach yourself back to the problem and fix it. You have to identify yourself with the problem. Amen? Then you can start fixing. So the wall was completed. I want so badly for each person in here, man, woman, and child, to really know the commissioning that the Lord has in your life. Because without that commissioning, you really feel lost. Without understanding your calling and the gifts that God has given you, you feel lost. But the thing about Jesus Christ is that he has given gifts, hasn't he? And he's given a commission. And he wants you to know what wall to build. He wants you to know what you are supposed to do. But I also want to encourage you that if you're building a wall, don't look at somebody else's wall as big and a little shinier than yours, a little bigger than yours, a little more out in front of other people. Amen? When the Lord has given you a wall, don't look at other people's walls. Just build your wall. Just be faithful. Just do the thing that the Lord has commanded you to do. Because what happens is, if you've got this kind of, what you consider an insignificant wall, and someone else is building this big, prestigious marble wall, then all of a sudden you look at their wall and you say, wait a second, I'll go help them build their wall. Amen? Because their wall is bigger and better and shinier. You understand what I'm saying? 
That's the tendency. I, I do that all the time. You know, you see some great organization, Voice of the Martyrs, or any organization out there that's just doing a real good, nice work. You know what I'm saying? Hmm. Maybe I could get a part of it. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know? But you know what? You'd be the same person there. You get there, you'd be there for six months, and you'd be looking at another wall. Get your eyes on, the, on your own wall. The Lord has given you gifts to accomplish a certain task, to build something for the kingdom of God. Keep your eyes on it. When you faithfully complete the wall like Nehemiah did, Nehemiah's ministry wasn't over when the wall was completed. That has propelled him into better ministry, further ministry, a bigger ministry, a more influential ministry. Not for these ambitions, but for these ambitions. Praise the Lord. And so I'm looking forward. I'm not sure how Dr. Cottle is going to present the book of Nehemiah. I'm not sure if he'll get into the character of Nehemiah, but really you can't talk about the book without talking about the character of the man. And he was a great leader. He was a man of prayer, a man of courage, a man who would identify himself with the people, a man who was wise, a man who surveyed the problem and got the answers before he started talking. And you've heard pastor talk many times about the Lord to give him a, a word for a person, but there's also the timing for giving the word, isn't there? There's wisdom and discretion that has to be used. And these are all part of good leadership. You can blow everything by doing the wrong timing. Totally blow it. The Lord can give you a word, and the word is for next week. And you give it now, and it can totally blow it. Nehemiah was a man of wisdom, a man of courage. And so I pray that, that we can take on these attributes. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we want to commit our lives to you, Lord. We thank you for your word, the word of God, the word of Nehemiah. We thank you for the richness of the word, and we look forward, dear God, even this class, those who are taking it, I pray that you would teach us more about these areas of leadership, these areas, Lord God, that you are desperately wanting. And the church is so hungry for good leadership, people that are positively influence the kingdom of God. And so, Lord, we just want to put ourselves in a position to be used by you however you might want to use us. And so, Father, help us, Lord. I pray that for each person here, that you would reveal to them the project, the wall that you have for them, and that we would just dedicate ourselves, that we would get the commission, get the strategy, and go to your Bible, go to your word to accomplish it. And so I pray a blessing on every single person here, on the department heads, I pray a blessing on them, that in some way that what we talked about today would help them, Lord God. And so Lord, we just commit our lives to you. We pray, dear God, that you be with the team in Jamaica, Lord. Be with Pastor, be with Brother Tom, and Brother EJ, Lord, Brother Mike, and his family, Lord God. We just pray blessings on them. I pray, dear God, that you prosper their steps, Lord God. I pray, dear God, that you would give them the wisdom of the Nehemiah, the leadership of Nehemiah, to be able to take this huge project of the revival in Jamaica, and that you would give them favor, dear God. I pray, dear God, that the same way that Nehemiah can motivate and raise the morale of the people, that through the power of the Holy Ghost working through this team, they could raise the morale of the people that they could raise the morale of the spiritual and political leadership there, to come on a board and build this wall in Jamaica, to accomplish this thing for the kingdom of God. And so I pray a blessing on Pastor Hanson and the team. Protect them, dear God. Let the blood of Jesus cover them. Let your holy angels be about them. And we just pray that victory and the peace of Jesus Christ would surround them. Let them have victory, Lord God. Let them come back the same way as before that the meetings would go and everything that would go so much better than they could ever have comprehended or expected. And so bless them, Lord. Encourage them and strengthen them. And I pray for my brothers and my sisters right here that you would encourage and strengthen them. Give us a good, good afternoon, a good evening. Help us, dear God. And I pray first and foremost that if anything that we could learn from Nehemiah, that first we have to be determined in our hearts to be men and women of prayer. 
that we have to be disciplined in that area, Lord God. Motivate us, Lord God. Help us, Lord God, and forgive us, Lord God. Help us to put our hand to the plow and never, ever look back. Bless us, Lord. We love you. We commit our lives to you. And we say, have your way in our lives. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of Warning Radio with Dr. Jonathan Hansen, founder and president of World Ministries International. Warning Radio is a listener-supported program. We need your donations in order to continue airing these Christ-centered prophetic programs. Send your checks or money orders to World Ministries International, Post Office Box 277, Stanwood, Washington, 98292. To donate securely by phone, call 360-629-5248. Visit our website to find other ways of giving and a wealth of information about World Ministries International and host Dr. Jonathan Hansen. The website is worldministries.org. There, you'll also have access to hundreds of previously aired radio programs, made-for-television videos, thousands of articles, Dr. Hansen's books, and travel itinerary. Again, the website is worldministries.org. The phone number is 360-629-5248. Remember, the Lord is not slow about the promise of His return, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for everyone to come to the repentance that leads to eternal life.